holiday season, treat yourself. Treat yourself to candy. Celebrate the holiday season with the Holiday Crush. They've sprinkled candy with a holiday theme and fun-packed challenges every week for five whole weeks, finishing on January 4th. The more challenges you complete, the better your chances of unwrapping delicious rewards. So, are you ready to crush the holidays? Play the Holiday Crush now. Download it from the App Store, Google Play, or Windows Store for free. Terms and conditions apply. Mesut Ozil el envío al área, el remate ahí está el primer tanto del partido no lo celebra por supuesto Aaron Ramsey 0 a 1 para el Arsenal This is Arscast Extra <coughs> uh, Good evening everybody And welcome to the very first live Arscast Extra. Indeed. <laughs> this is quite weird. It is quite weird. It's weird for us because we've actually never recorded this in the same room no, either. No. Never mind the fact that there's, you know, 100 odd other people here. Yeah. So it's odd. And you're all looking at us and judging us. Yeah. So. <laughs> and we don't look how you expect. Yeah. I've got glasses. We're basically underwhelming as a pair. <laughs> But here we are. And uh, thank you all very much indeed for coming. I uh, really appreciate it. This is the first time we've done one of these, so we'll see how it goes. Um, But because it was the first time, we thought we'd have a bit of insurance in case we were even more underwhelming than we are. So um, can you please welcome our guests tonight? Uh, first, Amy Lawrence. Good evening. And Philippe Auclair. So, um, when we picked the date for this Arscast, we knew it was uh, <laughs> after the Chelsea game. Yeah, there was an element of risk involved. <laughs> um, confession, this is the only date they had available at this venue. Yeah. We were, nevertheless, cautiously... Pessimistic, yeah. <laughs> I think. Um, so, in terms of what happened yesterday, uh, there are positives and negatives, but more negatives than positives. Mm. Uh, James, your take on the uh, on the game itself and how Arsenal performed? I think it's difficult to be surprised by it, isn't it? I mean, I think isn't that what most people expected? Yeah. You know, a, a defeat. It, I was speaking to my friend Tony earlier, and he said it was a bit like a, an elder brother holding his, his kid brother at arm's length. Uh, and that is what it felt a bit like to me. It felt like Mourinho and Chelsea kind of had us where they wanted us. Once they got that first goal, it felt like they were able to adapt their strategy accordingly, sit back a bit, and the second goal on the counter felt like something of a, an inevitability. Um, I don't know. Did you see it that way, Amy? Yeah, I think that the word predictable was what sprang to mind, which was obviously disappointing because everybody is waiting incredibly patiently, I think, for uh, Arsenal to somehow overcome this curse of Chelsea in recent years and the curse of Mourinho, obviously, for Wenger individually, which people make a big deal about. But in the end, 
um, when you speak to both the managers, I definitely get a very strong feeling as much as it probably gets under Arsene's skin more than he would like to publicly admit and as much as Mourinho probably doesn't want to come out and say how much he enjoys it. <laughs> they're both very, very practical men um, and they know full well that what matters much, much more than whatever gets people excited on the touchline or whatever barbs get thrown around, that what goes on on the pitch means pretty much everything to them. Uh, and results-wise, there's obviously a big problem as far as Wenger is concerned when he faces Mourinho's teams thus far. And eventually, one would imagine that that has to change. But <laughs> the question is, what Arsene has to do to make that change and how close this evolving team is to, to trying to do that or, yeah. I mean, what did you make of the, the team selection, Philippe? Because he obviously looked to yeah. shore things up a little bit in midfield, picking the three yeah, players in I, there. I wasn't. I mean, I was, I, I was at Stamford Bridge, and when we got the team sheets, I don't think anybody... There, there was no big surprise. Perhaps the only thing would be that the Ox was not on the team sheet because of the, the dynamism, the fact that he's also a player who does his, you know, quite a lot of work, defensively speaking. And he's also a very direct player, and could perhaps pin their fullback a little bit more than, than others would do. Um, there was a question, would Alexis be preferred to him? And also the way they, they lined up, at the beginning you think, mm, I'm not too sure about it with Jack in this position and Ozil on the right-hand side. But in fact, it worked extremely well for 45 minutes. And I, I'm trying to accentuate the positive, um, but... I, I genuinely thought, I, mean, I tweeted it at the time, that these were the best 45 minutes I'd seen from an Arsenal side against what is genuinely a top, top team away from home for a very, very long time. I'm not saying that Chelsea were under the cosh or anything like that. I'm saying that Arsenal were creating problems and that Chelsea had to have players who were at the top of their game, particularly Nemanja Matic, the monster, mm. Uh, to, to be able to repulse that kind of... Um, I mean, also the, the way they went into the 50-50s, and there was, it was a national team that was really up for, for that game. And certainly, also the fact that Mourinho, when you had to make a change, decided to bring in John Abbey Mikel was a proof that actually he, he feared that Arsenal team perhaps more than he would let go. Mm. I think if you, uh, as Chelsea were, 1-0 up for a while until quite late on, the fact that Arsenal were pushing to equalise, you know, might have happened with a different set of circumstances on the, the penalty, for example. Yeah. It is a big improvement on last year for obvious reasons <laughs> it needed to be. But you just feel that somehow the luck element, you know, Chelsea are so good at making that for themselves because they're so powerful and so well organised. But Arsenal weren't actually, as Philippe was saying, in some ways that far away and to lose 2-0 against a team who may well end up winning the title away from home it's not a calamity it's, it's, it's just this build up of history of not doing well in big matches away from home which creates something psychologically which is where there's this big disappointment because people are waiting for it to end yeah I mean James I was going to ask that is, is there now a psychological element to these big away games where the expectation is no longer that we can go to Stamford Bridge or to Old Trafford or to the Middle Eastlands and, and get Old Trafford. Yeah, we okay. can't go. We can't win there. <laughs> we haven't. We didn't last season. So, you know, it, it, it seems to be almost um, self-defeating in a way. Before you even go there, there is no real belief that we can get the result. No, and you know, I accept what Amy says. It's not calamity. But equally, you know, is it good enough? 
for Arsenal. You know, when you look at the money they spent this summer, their supposed ambitions to be competing for major honours for the Premier League. I, I think there was progress yesterday. I think Wenger changed a little bit about how he set his team up. I think in the attitude of the team, they were quite pragmatic. Um, and at half-time, you know, I was watching the game in sort of five-minute increments and sort of still glad it was nil-nil. <laughs> I don't know about you, but you know, having been 2 nil down after seven minutes last season, got seven minutes this time, I was chuffed with that. <laughs> you know, we still had 11 men. It was progress. Um, but then I sort of caught myself and I thought, yeah, as much as I'm trying to look on the bright side and trying to see that this is progress from the team, is that what we expect? I mean, there was an outlay of, what was it, £70 million this summer. And, and I appreciate we're early on in the development of this team, but... Going forward, you know, we seem to pose so little threat, and I, and I appreciate that Venka compromised his ethics a little to have a team that was more stable, more solid, that kept us in the game for long periods. But I felt like we sacrificed a little bit of our attacking threat. Going forward, we didn't have that fluency that you associate with an Arsenal team. And I wonder, you know, is that the price we paid for, for, for sending out an eleven that was, it felt to me at least, designed to keep us in the game? But the, the trouble with that, Arsenal have spent 70 million, so therefore have to be better equipped compared to Chelsea, for example, is it's not as if they're standing still and Arsenal's money spent is just a catching up process. Mm. Chelsea also spent money to improve, as Arsenal know only too well, on two players who have been amongst the best two performers so far in the Premier League this season in Fabregas and Costa. So it's not as simple as saying Arsenal spent all this money, therefore they have to be closer to the top teams because they're also improving. Yeah. Is there an element of unpredictability to the, to the team at the moment in the sense that we've got Alexis who is a guy with end product and, um, you know, he's... I think there's been an element of predictability to the team for a very, very long time. But I'm, I'm saying now that there's an unpredictability to our attack in that people aren't 100% sure of what their role is. At this point, I mean, if you think of Alexis, I think it's fairly clear in his case. Um, it, it's very interesting to see how differently people judge his performance. Yesterday, I was looking at the papers. You know, they always like to give notes to this or that player, and Alexis. I mean, it, the range of, of, of notes was was quite extraordinary. Some people said, "Oh, he created loads of problems," blah blah blah. Others said Ivanovic had him in his pocket, and the truth was actually in between the two. Is simply that he's not playing to the same beat as the rest of the team yet. And it is one of the questions that, that Wenger has got to ask himself, is that when you've got a player who is so obviously a player who can make a difference like Alexis, do you actually fine-tune your system and the way you train and the way you prepare and the exercises on the training pitch to what this guy can do? Or do you try to bring this guy into the fold and make him play this first-touch football that Alexis has never played? Uh, he, nobody hogs the ball longer that, than Alexis does in this Arsenal Yeah, there was team. that moment, wasn't there, where he sort of twisted one way, then the other way, then the other way, then back the other like way. Swan then, Lake. Yeah, we did yeah. about <laughs> like three, four, five, six turns, like uh, 360 degrees. I think it's quite telling the amount of different positions all the front players have played so far this season. I mean, that in itself tells you that either Arsene is experimenting because he's not sure exactly how to balance the front players yet, or that, you know they themselves are trying to work out the best way of playing with one another. And I was reminded watching the game against uh, uh, Galatasaray 
of of something Dennis Bergkamp said a little while ago when he was talking about the great teams that he played in and he said the secret to the way they played obviously he had players of the likes of Pires and Henri alongside him was these patterns that they used to practice he mm. says practice the patterns practice the patterns and at London Colney every day what they were doing in their little five sides it wasn't all about the tactics and this is the mm. kind of thing that people pull Arsene Wenger up about right now when they say that strategically and tactically he's not got all the answers is they just developed this sense of exactly who was running where when and how to play with each other and when you think Arsenal have currently got a group with a lot of new components up front it takes time to develop those kind of patterns so they become completely instinctive and for the likes of Welbeck, Alexis, Ozil, Wilshire, Kozola etc who were all getting to know one another it's you know it's going to take time and I think the very nature of that kind of football is you're going to be a bit up and down for a little while and have some really great games that look encouraging like Galatasaray and some less encouraging more predictable games like Chelsea until they are familiar enough with each other and the game plan and, and I think Arsenal need to know who's going to be playing in what position mm. to really move forward okay. There's one thing is that the, the, the fact playing against Chelsea really uh, throws the light on, onto what Amy has just said because in front of you you've got a team where precisely the system is in place with implacable regularity where you know exactly what to expect as in what Matic is going to be doing, what Fabregas is going to be doing with the three behind, behind Costa, with Azar, surely or William and Oscar in the, in, in, in the playmaking role. You know exactly the system is working perfectly well. Uh, Arsenal is still, you still wonder what's your starting eleven. How, how do you deploy them? Well, everybody would probably agree that Ozil should be in the number 10 position. Okay? So it means that you've got to think there's going to be no protection when the ball on the counter or on the counter-counter, as Jonathan Wilson would put it, and there's going to be no protection whatsoever from Ozil because he won't track back. So you've got to think, oh, uh, so who do I put as a double pivot? Chelsea, easy. You've got Matic and Fabregas or Matic and Ramirez. That's easy. At Arsenal, you don't have this type of player at all. If there's one player, we were talking at you, we were chatting between ourselves before this, as you can imagine, <laughs> That the type of player that is missing the most from Arsenal lineup at the moment is not a Hazard, or maybe not even a Costa, but it's a Nemanja Matic. The DM, James. The mystical DM. <laughs> <laughs> Will we ever see one appear in Emirates Stadium? Uh, Santi Cazorla deployed in the centre yesterday, which caught me by surprise, I have to say. I know he played there in midweek in the Champions League, but... I certainly didn't expect him to play in central midfield at Stamford Bridge, did you? No, I didn't, but we were talking last week and you said, you know, play 4-3, 1-2 uh, or whatever it was. But that 3, he seemed to, he seemed to do that. Um, but it does seem that, you know, in a game like this, the margins, the fine margins are what happens at the top end of the pitch. And Per Mertesacker spoke afterwards and he, he said that the team defended better. Obviously, they wanted to put what happened last season behind them. But in the final third, that's, that's where they were found wanting, um, which leads me to, to Mesut Ozil. Um, I like him a lot. I think he's a fantastic player, but it's not difficult to be worried about him, James. No. And I think if you look at the game yesterday, the margins are fine, as they are in so many of these sort of elite matches between the top four. And, and the difference for me was that Chelsea's big stars delivered match-winning moments. 
you know, uh, Hazard, that dribble that won the penalty, I thought personally was outstanding. You know, the way he slalomed through the defence, that is incredibly difficult to stop. And the same on the second goal. Brilliant ball from Fabregas. Wonderful touch from Costa. Who, who knew Fabregas could do that? I, I imagine. <laughs> <laughs> if only we'd known, eh? Um, and the, the finish from Costa was exemplary and as efficient as he's been since the start of the season, really. And... You know, big games are often defined by big players. And Chelsea's really stepped up to the mark yesterday. And on the subject of Ozil, you know, I, I think it's very difficult to suggest... You know, basically, he, he didn't, did he? No. Uh, can I be the advocate of the angel? Of course. Uh, he, I think he, he, did, he made one of the passes of the game, which is this incredible pass for Alexis who squares the ball to, to Jack who misses out. His first touch is not as good, which is a pity because Wilshire actually had, I think, a, a tremendous game going forward. He was so penetrative, so dynamic. And it's very easy to un- underestimate what Ozil brings to that side, even in, in a position like this where he's lopsided, basically. I genuinely do think that he can bring an awful lot more but I also genuinely believe that he's already bringing an awful lot to that side. That it is, it's a bit too easy a scapegoat. Um, for, 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 you know, he, he has this incredible capacity to glide on the pitch, to find space where there's absolutely none. And, and it's perhaps something that you feel more when you're sitting literally on the touchline, as we were at Chelsea, and, and you look at him from close and you realize how, just how good this guy is. And he receives the ball in incredibly tight situations, his way of defying that is not physical, which, you know, on the TV screen doesn't, doesn't look that great. You think, ah, okay, he's shirking the challenge. No, he's finding space, and he finds it almost every single time. So I'm, I'm still expecting and hoping a lot from him. It's a, it's a really fascinating dichotomy with Ozil, because I feel a little bit about Ozil like I do about some modern art. <laughs> I feel like people keep telling me there are things that I should be seeing... What do you mean? There should that be a I don't label. necessarily <laughs> see. There should be a label on Mesut when he comes on, on the pitch. Does this, does this, does that. It's basically, I consider myself, I don't know, someone who watches a lot of football, who appreciates a lot of football. And, and I, I do appreciate most of what Ezel does, but I, I cannot escape my sense that there should be more. And it's as much about personality as it is about physicality. I feel like he's not imposing himself on, on, on games, in, on the big, big matches. He was great, he was great against Aston Villa. But then it transpired he, that they were, all their players were vomiting into the tunnel James, half time. James, so. he was one of the best players in the World Cup final. I agree with that. He had a great game in the World Cup final, playing from the left-hand side, where apparently he can't play. Um, and I thought he did very well. And he switched into the centre in the second half as well and, and, and played really well. But I, I don't know, there's something about... His level of conviction on the field, and a lot of people will say, well, he's not that kind of player, James. He's never going to be one of those guys who, who runs around and throws himself into things. And maybe I'm being reductive, and maybe I'm being a, a footballing Luddite of some description, but I don't know. There's some part of me that would rather watch a player play like Ray Parler than play like Mesut Ozil. <laughs> you know, there's some part of me that, that really wants to see that fight in him, and you do see it at times, and you know, this guy's six foot tall, nearly. Five foot ten, five foot eleven. He's quick, he's athletic, he's wiry, he's got a muscular build. I, I believe that he can give more. 
I've seen Mesut Ozil deliver more than this, and that's my frustration as a fan, is that I feel like there's, there's more to give. It's not that I doubt his quality, it's that I am struggling with how to bring the best out of him. And I, I don't believe it's as simplistic as he must play in the middle, because playing in the middle or playing wide doesn't explain miscontrolling a ball, trapping it out of play. Mm. You know, I feel like we're not quite getting the best out of him. I don't know, what do you think, Amy? I think the Ray Parler um, comparison is an interesting one. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Mazda. No, but, you know. no, no. Seriously, James, if you swapped... Ray Parler for Meza Ozil in terms of the teams that they played in. If Meza Ozil was playing in Ray Parler's team with the team he had around him, you mean the, the Invincibles about whom you've just Gilberto written a wonderful book? And, <laughs> thank you very much. Um, <laughs> uh, I actually have some up. of my books here for sale later, if you want. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway, as I was saying, um, if you were to put. Meza Ozil in that team with uh, the defence that was behind Ray Parlo, with Gilberto and, and, and Patrick Vieira, with uh, Thierry Henry making those runs, uh, Robert Pires, Fred, you know, Freddie Jungberg, I think he would be adored. I think if you put Ray Parlo into the current team, which has its vulnerabilities, shall we say, much as everybody would appreciate his work rate, they might get on his back. I think that's certainly true, yeah. I, I can't dispute that. I suppose it's just that thing of, I don't know, I, I know that he's not one of these players who is going to charge around the pitch making tackles. I don't think anyone expects that of him. Um, but I felt like the basics in his game yesterday weren't at the level that, that he can produce. Is, but is it a problem that he costs £42 million? In the end, is that a problem, that he's judged on that? You look at sometimes appearances where... Physically, he doesn't look that interested, whatever he might be doing on the pitch. And people go, oh, you know, you spend that much money, the least you expect is that someone's putting a shift in. <laughs> Maybe. Is not that... But I also think the transfer fee buys him a, a degree of goodwill, certainly from the Arsenal supporters. I think there's a real desire to see him do well. But I isn't there also something when you spend that much money on a player, you're, 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 you're doing it because you're buying quality and you're buying a player that can take you to another level and that's what people wanted with the signing of Mesut Ozil well maybe that's what he can do um, I, well I should he be playing should he have a defined role in the team now as yes the number I do 10? think so he's, he's very much almost the last of a breed he's a kind of Riquelme type of player um, who, was, who was supposed to be a passenger uh, players who are, who are creators and and I, I don't quite agree with the idea that it, you know, he hasn't got a position. He's very much one of those players who has a different position. Um, you, you can imagine a player like, for example, uh, Robert Pires playing on the left or playing in the middle or even playing on the right. No problem. He can do all three. Ozil needs, he's, 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 he's an actual player who drifts to the left. We all know that. And, uh, but I think the, the prime he has in is in terms of perception. You compare him with another recruit from Real Madrid... Angel Di Maria. And Di Maria, when he arrives at Manchester United, everybody says, oh, fantastic, fantastic. Because he's a player, you can see immediately what he brings to the team in terms of physical effort, going running box to box, tackling, blah, 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 all these sort of things. Ozil is different. And he's always been like that. It, it's not as if he's gone down a peg from the times he was at Real Madrid and people at the Bernabeu were imploring Florentino Perez not to let him go. So why aren't we seeing the best of him? I mean, has he not gone because down the a peg? Because the team is unbalanced. And that's, that's, that is so clear. The team is unbalanced. Uh, there, there is, 
you know, you, there is this theory that you don't need defensive midfielders. It was called the Pirlo theory. I mean, suddenly all the hipsters have decided because Andrea Pirlo was so great at the age of 35. Any hipsters here tonight? Yep. Hold your hands, please. Uh, and uh, the, the idea that it's because you've got players who are not, strictly speaking, the old tacklers, uh, people getting the ball, bringing it forward uh, in a team, as was the case with the Italian team, for example, um, you can do away with them. Actually, no, you can't. You can't. You do need those type of players. And wh what does Arsenal have at the moment? L'Arteta. Arteta is not a player in that mold at well, all. Yeah, yeah. So. He's a number eight. We all know that. He's always been one, always will be one. And we've got Mathieu Flamini, who is more of a box-to-box. -box. When he's at his best, he's a box-to-box -box midfielder. He's not one of these people who is going to do the kind of work that Nemanja Matic does or Victor Wanyama does for Southampton, for example, to take an example in the Premier League. Mm. It is unbalanced. The yeah. only thing I was going to say is that in terms of pure numbers, I know that there is a general fixation on us, so I don't want to dwell on it too long, but, you know, he has taken a step down in terms of what he's producing. When he arrived as the third highest, you know, the, great, the greatest assist maker in Europe over the last three with years. Ronaldo. He was playing with Ronaldo, but was now he making Ronaldo? Sonogo. That helps. Yeah. So the title of the He's not fucking from... Superman, is the basic point here. Is that a... I just feel the, the numbers have massively uh, dropped off in the last six months. Not even, you know, in the first period of his Arsenal career, his numbers were good in terms of assists, contributed some goals. Those have fallen away. There is a question, as you <laughs> just made the point, as to whether that's to do with the system around him, the personnel around him. But, uh, yeah, personally, I feel that, that the player himself is, is, is not... He's not quite delivering enough. And, you know, I, I appreciate that he's a, a, someone who requires a free role, someone who is a passenger defensively. But I don't know how much you can afford that against a team like Chelsea. Can I just say, very quickly, when you talk about patterns, which was what Amy was referring to, you have a team now in which you have three players who would be in the starting eleven who have arrived either last season or this season. You've got Danny Welbeck now up front, you've got Alexis, and you've got Mesut Ozil. And you've got Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain, who actually has been in the club for longer than that, but hasn't been necessarily a regular. It will take time to get the patterns of play going as well. I just think on a slight tangent, all this talk of uh, Ozil playing in the, the number 10 role or where he plays, is that it's getting a bit lost at how well Jack Wilshire's done in the last few weeks yeah. to, to actually come into that position and play well enough to give Arsene that dilemma. And he's been rising to the challenge extremely well. And people are very quick to get on Jack's back, uh, not necessarily Arsenal supporters, but outside the club. And I think it would be reasonable then for people to accept that they should give him a pat on the back for what he's been doing in recent weeks. I mean, do you think, I mean, it's, it's obvious that RSN really wants to, to give him a role in this team. Against Manchester City a few weeks back, he was absolutely outstanding in a big game against big opponents, against big players in, in that midfield. I, I think that was part of perhaps the decision-making to prefer playing Jack in, in, in that position at Stamford Bridge rather than Ozil. Hmm. Hmm. Well, it feels like I've sat here with my supporters head on going, fucking hell, we lost to Chelsea again. <laughs> and Amy and Philippe, you seem sort of more... Uh, you, you feel more optimistic. Well, very more smooth, of course, Philippe. I mean, <laughs> come on, you get that for free. You're French. <laughs> but I feel like... It'll uh, cost you. <laughs> I feel like there's... Um, 
an optimism in what you're saying. And, and in terms of our start to the season, apparently in terms of popular points, this is our, our second worst ever start to a season under Arsene Wenger. I was quite surprised by that. Um, I think second only to 2011-2012. How, Philippe, how do you assess Arsenal's start? Do you, do you feel like there are causes for concern or, or, or for optimism? I'm, I'm frustrated like everybody else. Yes, I am frustrated. And um, what's new? Um, I, I, I don't necessarily think that it's a matter though to, to you know to cover your forehead with ashes and I think there's so much negativity around the club that I, again I, I'm playing the, the angels advocate because mm. there is a tendency which sometimes I'm prone to uh, to embrace myself to to look at the dark side of things and it's true that you look at some of the performances I mean Leicester was not convincing was it not at all it was no. pretty horrible uh, the league cup against Southampton was Bad with a team that was not so different from the starting eleven. Um, on the other hand, I think that maybe we are um, we are uh, singling out factors which might not be the most concerning. Um, and when people say, "Okay, Erzil, um, Alexis taking time, blah blah blah," things like that, the problems are the same we've had for a number of years, and they, they haven't changed really. I mean, I think that. One of the reasons why we feel slightly more optimistic is the fact that at, le- at least on Sunday there was a fighting spirit within that team, which is why I disagree with you. I don't think that team arrived on the pitch beaten, and I really like that. I thought they really believed they could beat the Chelsea team, and that's, that's a huge difference for me. Amy, the, uh, the start of the season has been tough, obviously, for various reasons, as we know, the, uh, the World Cup, the injuries... Yep. Uh, the new players trying to bed them all in, and obviously the opponents that we've had, four away games uh, in the Premier League, Chelsea, uh, we've played Tottenham, we've played Manchester City, we've played Everton. We're now looking after the interlull at a run of games which should uh, provide more grounds for optimism. Is this the time where the manager has to decide on, on what his best 11 is and what his best system is and, and build the confidence in the way that the team plays in these games, which are, for the most part, winnable for, for a team like Arsenal. It's a really good point, and I think that they should be looking at these fixtures and think this is perfect consolidation time. Um, nobody's going to like looking at the table if you think you've even got a pig's chance of winning the league and seeing yourself nine points off the leaders after seven matches. But these things can change relatively quickly. And with, an, uh, you know, with a run of, of, as you say, winnable games, it's as much about picking up points as it is establishing this pattern. You want to see the team absolutely believing in the way that they're playing with that real confidence and enjoying their football. The best Wenger teams enjoyed their football. They loved playing with each other. You could see it on their faces. You could see it the way they looked at each other, the way they interacted with each other through a gesture as much as the way they played with one another. And this team has to discover that somehow. There are the people as characters, as players, to do that. Everybody knows the weaknesses in the squad. Another couple of injuries is going to be a very difficult situation defensively. That's nothing new, and there's nothing that's going to change about that until at least January. But if the team can somehow stay fit and bond a little more and evolve a little more, sitting here in a month or six weeks time it could look slightly different Mm. I mean Philippe there are nights where it does look like there's 
huge potential. Like you look at what happened against Galatasaray as, as poor as they were, you still have to, we've played plenty of poor teams and not done that to them. I think so the technical expression, they were shite. Shite, yeah. Yeah, that's, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they, really were, they really were. Yeah. It's wonderful, you know, it's really the, the, the old song, can we play you every week? Uh, yeah. Every day. <laughs> yeah. More like Felipe Melo. Ooh, Orena Shiju, fantastic. Yeah. He's bad. He's very bad. He is bad. <laughs> Arsenal were linked with Felipe Melo, weren't they? For Many the times, time, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Many times. Classic He Arsene was actually Benga one defender. of those signings, wasn't he? People go, oh, why aren't we signing him? And then, then we see why. Yeah. Him and, <laughs> what's the other guy? Jan Amvia. Yeah, that guy. Oh, and, and Villa. Yeah, and Villa, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. He's coming, Who's, believe. Yeah. Yeah. He's the DM, folks. For he is pounds. the DM. <laughs> But, I mean, uh, for you, Philippe, is this next, uh, this next period of games after the, uh, the Interlal absolutely crucial? Because there's, there's a run where I think we face a load of shite, the technical term again, and then there's Manchester United and Liverpool, uh, and they're about the only and two they're, and teams. They're not, and they're not shite. Well, well, they're ahead of us, aren't they? Manchester United. Manchester United, yes. Yeah. Yes, uh, as they are. Do you actually have a list of that? Because I remember Hull on the 18th of October. <laughs> um, Come on, you've hang got on just one second. I know there's Hull and there's... I'm, uh, I'm very wary of these winnable games because that's exactly what Manchester United had at the beginning of the season. And yeah, but they're house. shite. I thought we established that already. I give you. Hang on, I'll go on. Uh, James, you, uh, you take over here for a moment. Our lack of preparation being cruelly exposed. So, uh, how? <laughs> how? Uh, fixtures. Shout them out. Sunderland. They're Sunderland. shit, aren't they? Away. Hull City. Sunderland away. Yes. Burnley at home. Yes, okay. Uh, this is just league now because there's a couple of Anderlechts in there. Anyone going to Anderlecht? Anyone uh, going to Paris? Sorry, Andrew, I had to do that. Um, so there's uh, Swansea City, Manchester United. Okay, not shite, not shite. West Brom, Southampton, Stoke, Newcastle. Shite. Yeah. <laughs> I think United. Liverpool, Queen's Park Rangers. Shite. Uh, yeah, so that's it. And then West Ham. And that takes us up to the end of the, the, end of the year. Oof. United oh will be interesting. That'll be a good litmus test because last year Arsenal twice faced a David Moyes Manchester United team that they absolutely should have beaten. And yet the, the ghost of Sir Alex Ferguson's side seemed to linger over those games. <laughs> you know, we didn't go and impose ourselves like we should have done. Wasn't and one of those games though after we got yeah. spanked? One was of the, the home after game the Liverpool was, game. Uh, we were recovering from, from what had happened at Anfield, I mm. think. But, you know, there's a United side with a, a weak defence that they haven't sufficiently strengthened. It's familiar. And uh, there's no reason at all that we shouldn't go out and give them a hell of a game. And I do think that... I do think that a victory against one of those, those major rivals... And I know United might not be perceived as a major rival in terms of honours, but they are historically, and I think they are psychologically, would change an awful lot. It can't be coincidence that Arsenal keep losing to the same sides again and again and again. So that would be, if we can get a good run against the likes of Hull, the likes of Sunderland, go into that game with some confidence and come out with three points, I think, you know, if we were back here, sitting here then, we'd be in a, a very different mood. Champagne. <laughs>
How how long is it? I mean, name me the last game against what you would call a not shite opponent from Arsenal where you saw a complete performance for 90 minutes. Um, is there a pause button here? Liverpool to the 2 0 against Liverpool. Liverpool, 2 0, yeah, that was with good. the Ramsey goal from the edge of the box. Is yeah, that, the one we're that about? was good actually because I watched that game with the with the mug smasher. It was ah. brilliant. He was sitting right beside me. He's going, oh fuck, we've lost it now. Going, that's right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was fun. But uh, no, it's it's true. I mean, we weren't bad at home, but away from home, it's been a long time since we. When was the last time we beat anyone good away from home? Five. Th- oh yeah, but I enjoyed did, that. Yeah. Who, who was in charge for the five-three of Chelsea? Shite. <laughs> <laughs> So look, I think we've uh, we've reached the end of, of part one of the the very first live Arscast extra. So what we're going to do is take a little short break, ten minutes, get yourselves a drink. We're going to come back and we're going to have a Q and A as we normally do. Uh, we're going to take the questions from you and not Twitter. So um, yeah, get thinking. All right, we'll be back shortly. Thank you. Hello again, hello. Uh, Right, okay, well, welcome back to the second part of the show. And uh, as is the tradition on the Arscast Extra, this is the the Q&A part. Uh, Before we do that, I just want to mention Jason here, who's taking photographs, who's doing a really cool project. I don't know if you've seen uh, Humans of New York. He's doing the Humans of the Arsenal. Uh, So if anyone wants to get their picture taken and tell their story about how they... uh, how they feel about Arsenal or what Arsenal means to them, come and see Jason at some point after the show. Um, Now, the questions. I know that there is a tendency from time to time to ask a a sort of surreal question, which (laughs) myself and James enjoy, obviously. Like, which would you prefer, cheesy fingers or a head made of a football? Um, But as we've got two esteemed guests with us, for the next few minutes. Proper people, guys. Proper people These who are proper have people. intelligence and brains. <laughs> if we could leave those questions till a little bit later, because uh, Philippe and Amy can only stay for another 15 minutes or so. So uh, you might as well use their knowledge um, and not waste it. And then when it's just us two, you, we can make shit of the whole thing, all right? <laughs> So um, what we're going to do is uh, we're probably going to wander into the audience uh, alternately. Um, and James, you're going to do the, the first question we have. Yeah. Stuart. Look at this. I'm, go- I'm out. I'm among you. It's exciting. Mingling. Right. The first question. I'm limited Minging. by this cable. The first question, I believe, comes from Stuart. Would you like to ask your question to the panel, sir? My question to the panel. Should the manager adapt his grand plan to accommodate the the style and the skills of his players, or should he expect his players to adapt their style to the grand plan? Philippe. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks. I'm not fucking touching that one. (laughs) Uh, To which my answer will be another question. What is the plan? The plan being the kind of post-Balsa style of of intricate passing... Uh, tricky play around the penalty area rather than the more explosive style of football that maybe we saw 10 years ago. I think one of the things is that Wenger is fundamentally a jazzer uh, in terms of um, if you think of a manager as a conductor 
is more a guy who likes, he gives the beat, and then you improvise, guys. And very much the training sessions, you carry on, carry on, it's good, I like it. And, and then the guys start blowing. And they start blowing, to their own, and they do their own tune in a way. So... Can you call this a plan? Yes, you can. You can do that when you've got a group of players who grow together, which is what he had, what he developed when he arrived at the club. It's also something he tried to develop with that wonderful 2007-2008 side, which is, I think, forgotten by many, but which was mm. truly wonderful to watch. And at the moment, it's completely different. We are, we are very much in a period of transition, trying to bed new players in when the grand, the grand theory of let's... Uh, train players from the age of 14 or 16 and make them develop uh, uh, a style of play a bit like what Ajax has been doing. And this policy, uh, we've come back on it by buying older players and having to do work of, well, fitting the square pegs in the old round holes as usual, and which is why it's taking more time. And to be honest, I, I do not know what the plan genuinely is. It's still a jazzer, but... I cannot see any um, tactical grand plan that you would have at the moment. If you look, for example, at this team, when Olivier Giroud comes back, how will it play? It won't play the same way as it does with Danny Welbeck. When Theo Walcott is fit again, he won't play with Theo Walcott with the, sa the same way that he has to play when Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain is there. So I think that there's, when we talk about period of transition, it's not just a period of transition in terms of the personnel, it's also a period of transition in the style of play and the tactical setup of that team, which is not necessarily Arsene Wenger's forte. Mm. So he's a bit 70s David Bowie, and that is changing from... Ch-ch-ch-changes, yes. Amy, any thoughts on this grand plan? Well, I think there's always been a bit of a mystique about how Arsene Wenger coaches his players. And... One thing that I've always heard time and again is that you know the players seem to feel that they're not told specifically what to do very often. Um, yeah. Lee Dixon tells a really nice story about Ashley Cole developing into the fullback that he became. And that when he first came into the team, he had all this promise, but he needed to learn how to be a defender. And Lee Dixon said, well, Arsene wasn't going to show him how to be a defender because that's not his forte. That's not what he does. But he stuck... Ashley Cole next to Tony Adams and said, watch this guy and learn how to be a defender. And effectively, that evolution came from the players themselves. And he demands and expects of his players that they approach the game in a kind of intellectual way. He wants them to be so aware of what they're doing and what they can do that they can make their own decisions. He doesn't want to tell them what to do, make all their decisions for them. A lot of coaches, and I guess Mourinho which we've been talking about a lot this evening, is the archetype of this. Wants his players to understand to the nth degree exactly what is expected of them throughout every game and for every possible situation. Arsene is in some ways the exact opposite. Yeah. He wants his players to go on the pitch in this free-form way with this ideal of the way that they can play and resolve the situations or the problems they might confront themselves. So it's a really unusual in modern football way of managing. And if you have the very best players at the top of their game, it works. But anything that knocks that out of kilter, that's when you see the problems. But you think of the situation, for example, when, um, when Mourinho faced uh, Laurent Blanc in the, in the second leg 
uh, of their game against Paris Saint-Germain. And when the players said afterwards, we'd rehearse that in, in the training, on the training ground, the way we would play if we were 1-0 up, 2-0 up, 2-1 up, 1-0 down. All the scenarios had been dissected before on video. Mm. Players had been given precise instructions. No, not with Arsene. When you talk to his players, you talk about the ladies. And I mean, I, I've talked to Manu Petit and, and Robert Pires on numerous occasions. I said to them, could you explain to me what you do on the training pitch? And neither of them could do it. They just said, <laughs> we just, you know, they, they rehearsed some patterns. Yes, of course. Uh, they develop a rhythm. It's all about rhythm and the way, the speed at which the ball arrives to you, in, in your feet and how you position yourself. This kind of, it, it is jazz. It, it's Duke Ellington. It's, it's not Johann Sebastian Bach. And, and, and some people would say it is not modern at all. When it works, it's absolutely magnificent. When it doesn't work, there is no answer to your question, Stuart. So I hope that answers your question, Stuart. <laughs> I, um, just to, <laughs> the answer is there is no answer. Amy, just a, a quick one. You mentioned how the, the, the players, Arsenal expects the players to learn among each other and from each other. But do you think there are enough uh, players with that kind of experience, that seniority, you, you mentioned Lee Dixon, for the younger players to learn from in this squad? It's very interesting, and that's why... You can, you can see a kind of passing of the baton from the first day that Arsene Wenger walked in and walked into a team with the very famous back four, David Seaman, David Platt, Dennis Bergkamp, Ian Wright. You know, there were some pretty seriously big character players with massive experience when he walked in. They then passed on their expectations and knowledge to the next generation. So the Petits and Vieiras and Henri's and Pires's and Gilberto's took that on board and learnt from them, the Lawrence uh, and so on, and Sol Campbell coming in. But then, at the time that coincides exactly in many ways with leaving Highbury to the, for the Emirates, with the age of austerity, as it's called, with the belt tightening, with Project Youth, with this dream of creating a new team with the, uh, the likes of Fabregas and and Flamini and some of the ones that didn't quite work out like Nicholas Bentner and Danielson. But that this idea that you get the best young players you can find in the world and they develop this love. You're Mouse Jones here, one third of the Guys Next Door podcast. Now listen here, with best Christmas ever on AMC Plus, every day feels like Christmas morning. From new holiday favorites like Elf and National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation to modern and iconic family classics like the Polar Express and the Year Without Santa Claus. You could spend the holiday season opening only the good stuff. It's the holiday season, and that means it's time to see old friends like Buddy the Elf, Heat Miser, and Clark Griswold. They're all here on AMC+. AMC Plus is available on all your devices, so celebrate the best Christmas ever, anytime, anywhere. Make sure you sign up today at amcplus.com. AMC+, only the good stuff. This holiday season, treat yourself. Treat yourself to candy. Celebrate the holiday season with the Holiday Crush. They've sprinkled candy with a holiday theme and fun-packed challenges every week for five whole weeks, finishing on January 4th. The more challenges you complete, the better your chances of unwrapping delicious rewards. So, are you ready to crush the holidays? Play the Holiday Crush now. Download it from the App Store, Google Play, or Windows Store for free. Terms and conditions apply. For the club and for each other, and it turns into a great team, well, everybody knows what happens. It didn't quite work. And suddenly the chain was broken. 
and trying to re-establish that kind of uh, experience and know-how and ability to cope with difficult situations that was there before he arrived and right up until the point of leaving Highbury and the the, the gradual breakup of the Invincible team Mm. Mm. is is where things have changed. It's quite difficult to reignite that. Which perhaps, Amy, led to this process of re-anglicisation of the team. You know, this this photograph where you see... uh, well, Jenkinson, the Oaks, you know, all, all these young British players signing a long-term contract, you think, well, maybe that's, that's, that, that is the idea. We're, we're bringing through a nucleus of players whom we think will adhere to an idea, a concept, an ethos uh, of, of the club that perhaps we, they couldn't have anywhere else. But mm. uh, in, in the current players, I think Perma Tazaka is one that I would look, look up to as to giving the proper values to the people around him, yeah. definitely. And he's a guy who's only been at the club since 2011. So yeah, but he's that kind of go. guy. All right, we're going to take another question. Anybody from over here? Anyone? Okay, uh, this gentleman here with his hand in the air, I don't think I can come down as far as you, so you're going to have to come here in front of everyone. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> this is like in school. <laughs> Explain your workings, please. <laughs> uh, your name? Chris. Chris, and your question? Um, so last season when we played Liverpool, uh, they played very effectively in a midfield diamond formation. Um, don't you think with the pacey players we have now, there is some virtue in Wenger exploring that formation? Mm. James? I really do, I have to say. Thanks, Chris. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I think looking at the way Liverpool played last year, Although they ultimately came up short, they were able to run City and, and Chelsea really remarkably close. If it wasn't for that Crystal Palace match, you know, they may well have gone on to... to the hilarious Crystal Palace match, I think. I mean, genuinely hysterical. <laughs> I've never enjoyed watching a Tony, Tony Pulis team quite so much. Um, they really made great use of that system. And I do think Arsenal have a comparable set of attacking options. You think about Sterling, Suarez... Sturridge, but you look at the pace of guys like uh, Alexis, Welbeck, Walcott, Oxlade-Chamberlain. For me, there's no reason that Arsenal can't play a similarly high-intensity pressing game from the front and, and utilising a not-too-dissimilar system. And, and also, that, that formation gives you the opportunity to play uh, Meza Ozil in his best role as a, as a number 10. You know, you could flank him with, with Wilshire and Ramsey on either side of the diamond and you'd be looking at a guy like Arteta or Flamini as the base with the fullbacks pushing on. It, it's something that would really intrigue me to see, but Arsene seems very wedded to some kind of five-man midfield, be that, uh, you know, a, a, a 4-5-1, a 4-3-3, a 4-2-3-1, whichever way you want to cut it essentially there's five men in there controlling the play. So it's not something I anticipate happening, but the, the opportunity to see Arsenal play A, with a front two, and B, with Ozil stationed behind where he can do the most damage, really excites me. Amy, I know you. the front two is something you really want to see. I'm, I'm obsessed might be overstated slightly, <laughs> but I, just, I, I totally think that's the beauty of if you do want to try some kind of diamond formation is it's allowing you to try and play two forwards. And I think there have been countless occasions over the past couple of seasons when you've looked at the predictable Arsenal and thought, oh, and Giroud's toiling away and nobody's anywhere near him and the guy's playing wider, hugging the touchline and nothing's happening and everybody's too far away from each other and you're just crying out to see 
a couple of attacking players interacting with one another, getting close enough to each other to perhaps even see each other in the distance. <laughs> I mean, it, it, it just seems such an obvious thing to at least try. And yet, Arsene seems quite unwilling to no. give it a go. But I do think it would be worth, perhaps in this run of fixtures against the... The shite. Yeah, I'll leave it to say that. <laughs> that you know, might be a, a great opportunity to at least see if you can get that kind of click, that kind of connection between whether it be uh, uh, Danny Welbeck and Alexis up front or any other combination, Theo coming back, whatever it might be, try it. Which is coming, you know, from a manager who said in his formative years in England that 4-4-2 was the default system because it was the only system which enables you to, enabled you to cover as much of the pitch as any other. But the, the, the thing is, he never thought it as a 4-4-2. He always thought, thought of it as a 4-4-1-1 with one top player and the player playing off him, and which is quite different from... You can't do that with a, with a 4-4-2 diamond. You, you have to have two genuine people who are up front and, and permutating. Uh, the personnel is there, but tactically, uh, Wenger is, is quite inflexible. Um, he doesn't really believe in systems, uh, which is something which has changed over the years, because when he arrived from Nancy to Monaco, the first thing he did when he arrived at Monaco was actually to... Uh, have very intense tactical sessions with his players to put in place this 4-4-2 that he had at the mo in mind. And he seems to have completely changed, his, uh, changed the tune uh, since then. And I, I, I can't see that happening. Uh, I, not that I don't believe that the, the, the team or the, the squad or, or, or the players that he's got at his disposal w would prevent him from doing so, but I don't think it's going to happen. Can you imagine him in Giro and Welbeck, for example, playing up front together? I can. I'm not sure. He, I don't think he's going to do that. Mm. I can imagine it. I think it'd be a great combination, as would Giroud and Alexis potentially. Yep. Uh, you know, they sound like great front twos on paper. But Arsene seems—he uh, only seems to use four, uh, two strikers in emergency situations. We saw it in the FA Cup last year, in the semi-final and the final, I believe. He threw Yaya Sonogo on alongside Giroud. Yeah. It's a last resort, but he hasn't started with two pure strikers for a long, long time, and. Yeah, I can't see that changing anytime soon. All right. Go get another question. Sure okay, have we got any more? <laughs> oh, there's one there. Can you meet me halfway? Andrew, you're going to need to add this to the long stuff, list of stuff that I've said that needs to be edited out. Yes. Right. <laughs> Here we go. There's been a lot of talk about tactics and formations and players. Arsenal seemed to have a very successful formula um, in the first half of his tenure. And... Uh, a lot of wonder why he doesn't go back to that. Do you think that's because football has moved on or do you think he just can't find the players to play? And I'm mainly talking about pace and power in the midfield and speed on the wings, you know, the, the, mm. the team of 98. Is it because football's moved on or is it because he can't get the players? Andrew, has football moved on beyond yeah. Arsenal's strategy? Football has moved on, and, and the way that teams set up as of it, there was that. It was almost like there was a switch. Um, it used to be every team played 4 4 2 practically, and then all of a sudden teams are playing three in midfield. You're outnumbered. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's difficult to find the players, but it's also very difficult to recreate things that you do that are amazing. And I think that. <laughs> is the biggest challenge that he has because um, having read <coughs> Amy's new book, which is out soon, uh, which you should all read, not just because uh, I'm telling you to, but because it's a, a, a great book, 
the thing about the 2014, the Invincible team, was that it's probably the best team any of us are ever going to see in our life. And whether that changes our expectations of what we want or expect from Arsenal now, I don't quite know. But I just think it's really very difficult. I mean, there's only one Mona Lisa. You know what I mean? So it's difficult for a manager to, to do that. And obviously the landscape of football has changed and there are, there are more teams that are good these days. It used to be just us and Manchester United. And now it's Chelsea and it's Man City and, uh, you know, even Tottenham are a little bit better than they used to be. So <laughs> it's, it's difficult. Um, the landscape, I, I don't know if he's ever going to be able to do it again. But Well, uh, if he's going to... No, he, he won't be able to do it again on the same basis because, for, for starters, I'm, I'm th- you, you talk about the 2003-04 team, I'm thinking of, of the late 90s team and the association of Petit and Vera. I mean, I think we're still all very nostalgic and dewy-eyed when we talk about that. Even the 2001-2002 team had some absolutely marvellous I mean, combinations of players. And it's the thing, that's, that makes me think, actually, that those relationships, you know, like you have the Petit Vieira, uh, Bergkamp, Jungberg, uh, which define the club and the way in which it played. You, you're looking at it in the team at the moment, you're thinking, which two players have got those kind of partnerships? I include the defense in that. You, you could argue Kosciani Mertesacker in some way, and I, 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 would, I, I would argue with that. I would think that's a good shout. But otherwise, you cannot really see it. You know, uh, if you're telling me what uh, Ox and Chambers perhaps could could develop, maybe, maybe, but the, you you don't see that um, all over the pitch as you saw it in the great teams of mm. uh, of, of the, uh, the the first ten years of Arsenal's tenure. But I, th- I think if you asked everybody in this room to pick the first eleven from be it the 1998 title-winning team, the 2002 winning team or 2004 winning team most people could more or less pick a first 11 with one or two either or here or there um, and that in itself is revealing because there's absolutely no way you can do that nowadays <laughs> and is that a question of football changing or a question of the fact that the squad has just got a different makeup hmm. yeah, yeah also, I, mean, I mean sorry sorry Jeff. sorry you go Philip no I was just going to say Arsenal is a very easy team to play against we all know that and we should recognize it in terms of it's, it's predictable. Uh, it's un- unpredictable in the patterns of play, but it's very predictable in the way it shapes on the, on, on, the, on the pitch. And you saw a very good example of how to counter it, what Leicester did, Nigel Pearson did, mm. which, which was absolutely superb, and they probably deserved to take all three points from that game. And we're talking about a promoted team. Mm. You met, uh, the question mentioned pace and power. Do you think with the signings of Alexis and Welbeck, do you think that Wenger is seeking to reintroduce those elements to his team? I think it is something which is new and actually quite exciting. Um, the fact that the, the classical Arsenal goal used to be corner kick to the opposition, go down the pitch in uh, about eight seconds. Now that's more. the classic opposition goal. Yes. Fortunately. <laughs> no, the classic opposition goal is corner kick, they score. Uh, well, both. <laughs> Any kind of corner represents danger. <laughs> we should avoid corners at all costs. Yeah, we may as well. We don't do anything with them. If you think, you know, it was defined by speed, it was Nalka, it was Overmars, and it was Thierry, of course. And, and, and the recent teams have tended to lack this kind of penetration, apart from Theo Walcott, who is injured a lot of the time. Now you've got... 
Danny Welbeck was very quick. You've got Alexis who was very quick. You've got the Ox who was very quick. You've got Theo who is going to come back as well. So yes, there is something which is genuinely exciting about that and perhaps a sign that Arsenal wants to come back to this kind of ultra-dynamic football where you can cross the pitch in, in, in less than 10 seconds. I wonder whether that does spell a bit of potential danger for Giroud for when he comes back. Yes. Because if this pacier style returns uh, in a more convincing and penetrative way to this Arsenal team in the next two or three months, it's going to be difficult to see how he slots back in without it becoming regressing to a more pedestrian kind of a game. Mm, that's a very good point. I thank you. Yeah, that's all right. <laughs> so, uh, cheers, Ollie. Thanks for everything. <laughs> all right, another question. Anyone? Yeah, last one. Just gentlemen here. Come on. Are oh, you still here? Hi. <laughs> Hi, your name? Um, I'm Charlie. Hello. Um, I was kind of wondering with the signs of Alexis, Danny Welbeck, and Mesut Ozil, and the fact that the manager's just signed a new three year contract, does that kind of tell you that because these players are in their prime, is this the manager's last contract? You know, do you see him continuing on after the three years? Ooh. James. Thank you. I mean, I thought the last one might be the last one. <laughs> So did he. Yeah. <laughs> it nearly so, was. So, so did we all about oh, after 80 the, minutes the against his other the back. Um, I, I really don't know. I have to confess. Sometimes you just have to put your hands up and say, I don't know. I, I wouldn't put anything past Arsenal and the board in terms of whether or not he would get an extension to this deal. Um, you know, they are, the board are massively supportive of him. It will be his decision when he stands aside. And if he didn't think that an FA Cup victory and qualification fourth place was an appropriate point at which to do that, I don't know when that point will be. Whether or not it will be in, th in you know, th the end of three seasons' time or, or beyond that. Um, I, I certainly think he's having a, having a go, as you'd say. You talk about the, the money that he's spending now. He's got a budget available to him that he hasn't had for about a decade. And, you know, he's hoping to enjoy the fruits of that. Um, but I don't think he's necessarily thinking in the long term. And that's a, that's a change that I would say about Arsenal. If you look at his signings, they are more about immediacy than they've ever been. And that, that goes back, I think, to that 8-2 defeat at Old Trafford when he went on that little splurge afterwards, brought in guys like Per Mertesacker, who were already into their late 20s. They, these were more experienced, more developed players than he'd ever been in the market before previously. And... You know, the signing of Danny Welbeck is another example. In previous windows, I think Wenger would have resisted the need to buy a striker, but he's willing to look a little bit more short-term and get in who he can um, this time around. So I feel like there's a more short-term strategy in place for Arsene, whether that's because he's going to retire at the end of his current deal, step aside, move upstairs, I have to say. I couldn't tell you. Amy, you got any better ideas? I think you're absolutely spot on when you say the only person who decides when it's the end for Arsene is Arsene. Um, I've never had any feeling that the board even considers making a decision for him uh, on pretty much anything, actually, but especially on, on what he wants to do for himself and for the club. So I don't think that changes over the next three years as long as Stan Kroenke remains the man who's calling the shots. Um, obviously those situations are slightly linked um, 
and none of us know really Gronkh's intentions and how long he wishes to be involved for. Uh, it doesn't look like changing anytime soon. Um, so, I, but I there, think, there is a finite I, I think amount of time he can go on, though, because he's going to be what sixty-seven. Yes, well, at the end of three years? In the first, when, when Arsene was a, a younger man at the beginning of his reign, he was a really steady guy. You really felt that he was completely in control of what he was doing all the time. I think he's become, in the second half of his Arsenal uh, uh, era, a more volatile guy, where you're, you sometimes aren't quite sure which way he's going to go, and he feels like a more changeable guy. Um, so from that point of view, it's, it's incredibly unpredictable. I mean, there was a period towards the end of last season, around about the time of uh, the, the, the semi-final against Wigan, where looking at him, I was genuinely slightly alarmed for him, actually. I felt he looked like he was under a quite scary amount of not just pressure, I think internal pressure more than external pressure. I think it more comes from within. He's his worst critic, never mind what anybody else says about him. And then the change in him after winning the cup and finishing fourth was unbelievable. He looked like he lost about a decade mm. almost instantly. He seemed to have an, the, the old zest and the old twinkle in his eye just returned all of a sudden. Sexy beach footballer. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, well, you know. I can't, I can't carry Sorry, him. I've killed it now. <laughs> I think you did, yeah. But anyway, the, I guess the, 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 the bottom line was that I felt this summer was a really fascinating one from Arsene to see the extent to which he was revived and reinvigorated and wanted to really go for it. Because he certainly gave off those vibes to an extent. But then sitting here, you know, a couple of months into the season, things seem to be a little bit same as, as they ever were. So I'm not quite sure where that leads. Philippe, I know you have to leave very shortly. Yeah. So final word on this question to you? Um, if I had to make a bet, I would, I would say that this is his last contract with, with Arsenal. Um, he's, he's got other ideas in mind. Um, he's got other projects that he would like to, to go to, uh, which are not necessarily projects which link him to another team or a national team or something like that, but uh, which have to do with uh, perhaps uh, working a bit more with uh, uh, his friend Jean-Marc Guillou in Africa, for example. He's, there's quite a few things that he, he would still he, he has in mind and, and is very, very conscious of ageing and I, I'm sorry, I'm putting a bit of a dampener on, on the evening but I, I noticed in the last few years that in the few interviews that he's given, because he hardly gives any anymore um, he was regularly coming back to the idea of, of getting old and dying and um, I'm not, I'm not, it's weird I'm that that got a laugh but they <laughs> Genuinely not joking, and that it's something which is, uh, especially given his personal circumstances, is, is something that he thinks about a lot. Um, as Amy said, he's his harshest critic. The minute he, dis, he, he, he thinks that physically he's not up to it, the minute he, the minute he thinks that he is not controlling things anymore, he will stop, which is one of the reasons why I think this contract would be his last. Okay. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, can you give a round of applause to Philippe because he has to leave us? Thank you, Philippe. Do some more? Yeah, do a couple more. So we're going to do, um, do a couple more questions. So, James, if you, if you want to cool. do the honors. Uh, another question? Oh, there's a few. 
Hey, let's, you're easy to reach, so that stands you in good stead. <laughs> um, name a question, please. Uh, on that final point, if it is his last contract, who next? Oh, Klopp. It's got to be. I think it's got to be. He just strikes me as, um, he, yeah, mental. And also, <laughs> just, just the right guy, because he's come, he, he'll come from a perhaps a similar kind of environment in Germany or, or in Dortmund in that, you know, there are the giant clubs as Bayern, obviously, who dominate everything over there, and, and Dortmund have, uh, you know, they've built a team, they've brought through some amazing young players, they've seen those players plucked off by the biggest clubs around Europe, um, and still remained competitive. And it just strikes me that if you were to, if you were to swap him in, at Arsenal, he would just have all the tools to, to do it. I know a lot of people spoke about Roberto Martinez, um, but I don't know about I don't know about that based on this season. I think Klopp is the ideal candidate. Amy, I think he is the obvious standout candidate, but the difficulty is getting him, and I just don't think it's as easy as sitting there thinking, "Well, hey, we're Arsenal. We've got loads of money. We had Arsene Wenger for years, and aren't, aren't we a fantastic club? Come on, Jurgen." Because I think. You know, Borussia Dortmund are a massive club in Germany. Um, they've been able to achieve pretty incredible things under Jurgen Klopp, and he has a phenomenal relationship with that club. A not dissimilar relationship, in a way, to the one that Arsene certainly enjoyed with, with his players and his club during the first half of his reign at Arsenal. Um, m- adored, much loved, totally respected, had a kind of magic, a kind of charisma and aura about him. These, you know, they're very similar atmospheres in many ways, and also successful. And it's, I just think it would be difficult to get him. It would have to be the right time for Jurgen Klopp, as well as the right time. Also, those things have to fall into place. And sometimes with management, that doesn't always work. Yeah. You know, you can be a season out for getting a player or a manager or whoever it might be. Uh, I personally think based on absolutely nothing except a bit of <laughs> instinct, that if Fabregas had decided that the time was right for him to leave Barcelona a year ago, that it would have been him and not Meza Ozil that Arsene would have bought. Yeah. But, it, you know, that wasn't the right time for Fabregas to leave Barcelona. He wasn't ready to give up on his dream at that point. A year later, the opportunity wasn't there for for our centre to want to buy him again. Mm. So, think, you know, things happen at certain times for certain reasons. Even when Arsene joined Arsenal back in the late 90s, I think that when George Graham went and there was a few months of uh, interim managers, there was a big... You know, David Dean was pushing hard for Arsene to come when Bruce Riot was appointed. But it, the timing wasn't right. He'd just gone to Japan. He was under contract. He didn't want to break a contract. And it needed that next year down the line and getting rid of Bruce Rioch and the vacancy being at the right time for Wenger to come in. Mm. James? Yeah, I think that's a great point. And whatever your feelings about Arsene Wenger, there weren't a huge amount of alternatives available in the summer. You know, so him signing extension certainly saved a job in terms of looking for a, for a replacement. It's tempting to say that I'd go for Klopp as well, but for, for, for the sake of variety, um, <laughs> I'll throw another name in, which would be uh, Diego Simeone at Atletico Madrid. If you, if you look at you know, the current Arsenal team, what it lacks, he seems like the perfect antidote to that. 
in Atletico, he's got a team playing well above its capabilities, superbly organised, competing with two absolute financial giants. Um, the job he's done there is quite extraordinary in terms of the turnaround he's produced. And if for whatever reason Klopp is someone who's not available when that time comes, Simeone would be bang at the top of my list. But he's also got to be available. And that's you know, a similar problem. I don't think you walk into Atletico Madrid and say... And, and he drops everything. He's got to want to leave as well. And just for the sake of argument, throwing yet another name into the hat, I would say Rudy Garcia at Romo is someone who perhaps would be slightly easier to prize away. There's not so much financial power in... Uh, in and guys, and he could bring Jovino back. <laughs> <laughs> and who wouldn't want that? <laughs> and that hair. Okay, we're going to take another one. Anyone down this side? You there. Blue shirt. Good evening. Hi. I'm all right. How are you? Good. Cool. Uh, Is this name? going in or what's uh, this? Yeah, no, no, no. It's good. <laughs> Just making friends. Alan. Ali. Ali. Yeah. Hello. Um, I'm, I'm a huge fan of Arsene Wenger, <clears throat> but given uh, all the sort of tactical things that we've talked about this evening and also his sort of uh, inability to reinforce in some areas that seem a bit sort of obvious to a lot of us, DM, defensive uh, frailties... Do you think there's a glass ceiling with Wenger? Do you think we can ever win anything again with him, effectively, the league? Right. Wow. Okay. Thank you, Ali. Sorry. Cheers. No worries. Uh, James, you forgot oh. that one, man. <laughs> Thanks, mate. Yeah. That's all right. Anytime, seriously. Well, we won something in May. Let's not forget he that. He said the league. Uh, <laughs> hey, a cheer. No, 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 true. Um, no, he said the league, I know. Tricky bastard. Uh, it's very hard to see. It's very hard to see because... Let's take Mourinho as a, a counterpoint to Wenger. I feel like when Mourinho builds his teams and sets out his teams, he's unencumbered by the aesthetic principles that influence Arsene Wenger's decision-making. I feel like Arsene Wenger holds certain things dear that will always determine his philosophy when he sets out a team. And a guy like Mourinho doesn't have those problems. He's able to be as pragmatic as he likes. He doesn't care if it's ugly. He doesn't care if it's, if it's pretty. He just cares about winning. And I think Wenger is a bigger man than that, a more inter- interesting man than that, a man with more values. But I think those values aren't always compatible with success, uh, especially in modern football. And I think that... Wenger's ethics and his, his ways of playing, his ideology depends slightly upon having the best players at his disposal. But with the resources that certain other clubs have, having that kind of, you know, those elite players available unto you and you alone is almost impossible. A brilliant eye is no longer enough. Mm-hmm. There is enough money out there that having Wenger's eye is not enough to build a team that is that far superior of everyone else's. I mean, is this the kind of thing where um, yesterday, and rightly enough, he complained about some of the fouling of Oscar and some of the fouling of Ivanovic, but, you know, is this not the kind of thing that we've got to do ourselves in certain games? To, to embrace the dark arts, to make sure that we get the right results? Maybe. I mean, we've talked a bit about the Invincibles tonight, uh, and it's not just because we're plugging Amy's book. Or my book, which is over here at the end of the show. 
Um, but if you think about that team, you think about Vieira, you think about Petit, you even think about a guy like Lauren or Dennis Burkamp, who are not characterised as dirty players, but who had that bit of edge, who had that competitive streak, who would do go that extra mile for three points. That's part of the game. That's mm. gamesmanship. This is where we should have a screen now and we should show that Lauren tackle on Ronaldo. Absolutely. The, you, that team had it in them. It, it, it did. And I, I, I do think that obviously... That's an important part of the game. But to come back to the original question, um, I don't envisage uh, an Arsenal team under Arsene Wenger winning the league in, in, the, in the remainder of his contract. But I would say that he faces stiffer competition now than he ever did 10 years ago. And that's as big a factor in it as any, any criticism of the man himself. All right, Amy? Going back to the original question, which I think is a really interesting one. Um, you know those lie detector machines that you can mm-hmm. they have in movies sometimes. <laughs> you know, Arsene Wenger is often asked by the likes of me and my ilk, um, you know, do you think Arsenal can win the league? Can Arsenal win the Champions League? It's you know, routine stuff, really. And he obviously generally comes out and says that it's all possible. But on a, I'd love to know what he really, really thinks. Like, does, <laughs> d- does he really genuinely believe right now with the squad of players he has and the squads of players available to his competitors and rivals at the top of the league that Arsenal come in the league this year? Hmm. Hmm. Andrew? Uh, no, I, I find it... I just think that the, the weaknesses that we have are too easy to expose in, in big games and also against some of the opposition that we should be beating. Uh, we let ourselves down. And do you, think, do you think this manager can change that? No, probably not at this point. Probably not. But we'll see. We should take another question now, I think. <laughs> Look at this guy dodging yeah. bullets. No, no, I just, you know, I, I'm... Have we got uh, more quick. questions? Yeah. Oh, yeah, we have. Hey, Andrew Allen, let's have a question from you. Um, this is Andrew Allen, co-author of... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think that... Um Aaron Ramsey and Jack Wilshere are the new Steven Gerrard and Frank Lampard. Uh, We're just staring at each other for a while. Do you think Aaron Ramsey and Frank Lampard are the new Steven Gerrard and Frank... Oh, no, I've screwed that up. <laughs> Aaron Ramsey and Jack Wilshere are the new Frank Lampard. Aaron Gerrard and Frank Wilshere yeah, yeah, are the yeah. new... Something like that. There does seem to be an incompatibility in the sense that their best position is the one that each of them plays in and there really can only be one of them unless we go back to that diamond formation that, that we were talking about that we're all convinced that Arsene Wenger won't use. Um, yeah, I, I don't know if it's quite like that because Gerard's a bit slippy and I don't think either of those two are quite, quite like that. But um, it's... I think he wants to play both of them in the same team, doesn't he? But it's it's difficult to see them. Yeah, but also you have to factor in the injuriness of Arsenal. And, you know, how often are they all going to be fit at the same time, all these players that you may or may not be playing together? And it's, I wouldn't say convenient, but, I mean, it's noticeable how they do, you know, sometimes take turns from one another because they've mm. had, you know, long spells either out injured or um, trying to regain some form. But they're not the same player. I, I think it's a bit simplistic to, to put them in that same hole. Um, 
Sometimes I think potentially there's more involvement in Jack's game and, uh, and Ramsey seems to be a player who sometimes can drift in and out of a game and then do something brilliant that results in a goal. Obviously his goal scoring last season was a phenomenon as far as Arsenal midfield is concerned in recent years. Um, but the onus on him is, you talk about the Lampard-Gerrard thing and you look at Ramsey and think, can he have that regularity of goal scoring that Lampard brought? You know, was that season and a bit when he was just scoring all the time is that part of his game from here on in or was that a bit of a moment in time what do you think but he hasn't played well this season and he's still got three goals you know so he does I think he's I think he's got the goals in him Um, I don't think it was a flash in the pan at all because if you remember back to when just before he got injured Ramsey, a much younger Ramsey, had replaced Danielson in the team as a regular starter and was scoring goals. Um, I think he cracked in a couple of fairly long distance ones. I think he did three or four goals. And then he got Shaw crossed. And that obviously set him back. So I think that's been a part of his game from, from the start. So, yeah, I'd be confident he can keep that going. But does it not also, as most questions do, just all revert back to the big DM question? And if the DM is there, then is it a different game for, for Wilshire and, and, and Ramsey? Is there a DM? The question <laughs> has plagued mankind for years. What about, um, I mean, England played Jack Wilshire in that deep-lying role against Switzerland. Do either of you think there's any future for him as a deep-lying player? Or do you think he's definitely better sort of coming into the final third? No, I, I think he's... He's got to play ahead of that deeper-lying midfielder because he doesn't have the physical presence or the aerial ability. I don't doubt his tenacity or anything like that, but he just doesn't have the physicality to do that job for me. Yeah, I, I think he's too good going forward to, to restrict him in that way. Yeah. All right, we're going to take uh, one more question from this side of the room. Uh, the gentleman here. <laughs> Hi. Hi. Your name? Mark. Hi, Mark. Your question? Uh, my question is, it's um, axiomatic that we seem to be getting a lot of injuries. Do you think, do, to the panel, do you have any theory on that? <laughs> we know <Amen>. each other. <laughs> Thank you, Mark. That axiomatic line is a bit of an old story. Tell us. Really? No. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, you can if you want. We're uh, all friends here. No, it dates back to many years ago when um, some of Mark's mates I bumped into on a train up to Sunderland who were playing against Chelsea and they bet me that I couldn't get axiomatic into my match report. <laughs> uh, and so obviously I took up the challenge and got it into the intro and then thought there's absolutely no way that the subs are going to not cut such a gratuitous word that was totally unnecessary, but they kept it in and uh, very kindly Mark's mate sent me a bottle of champagne. Oh, very was, good. So a- a- any further requests, you know, for any words <laughs> to be included in match uh, very welcome. But I-, I guess that more seriously looking at the injury situation, that is a humongous topic. Um, mm. you, you've, you've shadded a little bit. Um, in, in the sense that you're, uh, you've written something and um, 
is it a is it a case that we have to wait for what he's doing to take effect? I think that uh, I wrote a rel- relatively substantial piece, having had a, a load of long conversations with the group uh, of the American company from which uh, Shad Forsyth was a big part. There was four guys from this company called Exos in America who were at the vanguard of what they call performance culture, which is all about the physical preparation of players. Uh, It's not just about how they train every day on the training pitch. It's a huge package of how they live their lives and how they approach every facet of being physically uh, in the best place they can possibly be. It's hugely detailed stuff. And, of course, when Arsene Wenger first arrived at Arsenal, he was considered some kind of guru in terms of uh, the physical preparation of players. But, obviously, everybody's changed a lot of their ways since then and jelly babies in the dressing room and, uh, you know, Mars bars on the team coach and having a drink when you want is not really part of any... Well, I wouldn't have thought it's a, a big part of things for most elite sportsmen nowadays. But... What by, by introducing one of the guys from Exos in Shad Forsyth who worked for a decade with the German national team, I think was a very positive move and showed the seriousness with which Arsenal wanted to address this problem. But, first of all, I don't think it's something that happens overnight. And second of all, I think it's not just about bringing in one man. He can definitely bring a lot of new ideas, but there's a whole team of people that work with uh, for example, the German national team. It wasn't just him. There was, there's a whole team of them, and over a period of a decade where they were refining their methods to create the kind of fitness that that was available in that in that national team and was evident when they were winning the World Cup and the way they play. Um, so I think the whole culture has to change at Arsenal, and they need to not just... They need to listen to this guy and the expertise he brings and introduce a lot of the new techniques that he knows about. But I just don't think that happens in two months. Mm. Yeah, I think what's encouraging is that it's clear they are listening to his expertise and that there have been tangible changes in the way Arsenal prepare. Those of you who go to games will have seen players warming down after matches in a a much more active way than they have done previously. Equally, people warming up on the sidelines during the first half, which you never saw in seasons previously. It was only the three players who might be brought on warming up during the second half. Now they go out for little intervals of you know, uh, stretching and a little jog. So it's clear that incremental changes are being made. One thing I, I don't know about, I mean, you might be able to answer is, Shadfall size come in, but as far as I can understand, no one's come out. So is it effectively a new role that's been created for him? My understanding of it is it's a kind of additional role. The people who were there before remained there. And I guess, you know, sometimes when certain people have been responsible for a department for a long time and then somebody new comes in, it can be awkward. Um, I don't know what the relationships are like, um, you know, but there can be a period where everyone's checking each other out and somebody's coming and telling you what to do when you've been doing things a certain way for a number of years. It's not always the easiest situation. So, again, I think perhaps... People need to be a bit patient while these things settle themselves down before there might be very strong signs of progress. And we just stock up on the horse placenta in the meantime. That's it. Isn't it cheese now? Uh, Cheese, yes, of course, cheese. (laughs) Big blocks of cheese for muscle injuries. James, we're going to have one more question. Uh, We have one more. Okay. Hands, anyone? Um, Indy, Dave. Go on. Get Indy, Dave. Get Indy, Dave. Okay, here we go. This is bound to be Dave, what's your question? This is bound to be it, it is going. I wanted to ask about um, the central defence of 
area of the team. Um, obviously, we spent all summer recruiting or not recruiting defenders. We seem to be sort of the level we were shopping at was third and fourth choice. I'm thinking like Manolas, who went to Roma, who wouldn't have been breaking up the axis of awesome that is, well, I say that now, but do you think when we go to buy, hopefully go to buy defenders, that we're actually shopping for replacements for Murtisacker? Because on Saturday, they looked a bit suspect, Murtisacker, as well, well, Saturday, Sunday as well. <laughs> they looked a bit replaceable, to be honest. Kishanli, he's given away so many penalties, red cards. Murtisacker's not getting any younger. When it comes to buying defenders, should we be buying... Fives and six, not not eighteens and nineteens, if you know what I mean, in terms yeah. of squad numbers. That's a good question. I think it's the availability that's the issue. And maybe somebody like Manolas would have been the perfect guy to come in. He seems to be doing really well at, at Roma. Um, who could have maybe for a year understudied and then then come into the side. That's exactly your point. If you're Manolas and your choices are, do yeah. you want to go understudy or do you want to be first choice? I yeah. can totally see why he chose Roma. It was probably a difficult decision, but in the end it was probably the right one for him. But yes, there is an availability problem. And you look at how desperately Manchester United need centre-halves and how difficult they found it to, to recruit mm. th- this summer. It's just really difficult. I think one other point I would make about, you know, your you concern about maybe Mertesacker in particular, looking exposed at times. Um, Wenger has talked quite a lot about sort of post-World Cup hangovers and particularly how difficult it can be when your team's actually won the World Cup. And he, he, he said that even, you know, the experience he had with the France team in 98 with Petit and Vieira coming back and there just being a sort of slackness that it wasn't for want of trying, but it it's just much more difficult than you think when you've had that kind of summer and that kind of experience and that kind of high to just come back and get on with it. And he said it, he felt that, you know, at times even the players came up to him and were like, boss, you know, I'm just not, not feeling right, you know. Mm. So it's not necessarily about effort, but just not quite managing to attain those standards straight away. I would, I would say it's perhaps a bit premature to say that Mertesacker's kind of already on the downturn um, or over some kind of hill just yet. So I, I, I think that Wenger still has massive faith in Mertesacker and Koscielny. Obviously, the cover is a, a problem at the moment if any of them get injured. But I, I also think that Mertesacker, as a leader and as a man, is highly valued in that dressing room. And that's something that I don't think Wenger wants to easily um, put to one side for now. Yeah, and the thing about it, it t- it'll take per ages to get over the hill anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. James... Your yeah. final thoughts on that one? Final thoughts? I mean, I think Manolas, you mentioned, is, is one who I think Arsenal did want to do. And something that only struck me the other day watching Roma is that three quarters of their back four at one point during a game, I can't remember which match it was, was Greek. And I, I wonder how much of a, a factor that was in him going there. You know, we, we signed Ozil in part because we had that German contingent already present in the club. And he's gone to a club where he's with loads of his international colleagues and his compatriots. So he's probably pretty content in that choice. As for Mertesacker, you know, I'm a huge fan of Pear. I think, given his limitations, he has performed absolutely superbly. However, I, I do think it's interesting that when it came to the crunch for Germany, after a certain game, I think it was Algeria, but it may have been the US, Ultimately, it was Hummels and Boateng that Joachim Lowe picked for his side that won the World Cup. They ended up superseding Mertesacker in that side. And although he started the tournament, he found himself out of the team by the final. 
He's by no means the perfect centre-half. He's by no means the complete centre-half. And I think that competition's always healthy. And Arsenal, you know, in terms of looking for a defender come January or come the summer, should be trying to shop in that top bracket. There's, there's no reason that we shouldn't be targeting the likes of a, a Hummels or whoever because ultimately it's healthy. And, uh, you know, hopefully the, the cream will rise to the top. All right. OK, well, listen... Um Given that it is now quarter to ten, we're going to call it a night here. Thank you all very much indeed for coming. I uh, hope you've enjoyed it. Um, thank you to Amy Lawrence. <laughs> awesome. Uh, thank you, James. Um, again, thank you all for coming. Yeah, thank you very much, guys. You've been very lovely. Thanks for coming out. Thanks for your support. This will be available as a podcast tomorrow. Yeah. Um, I I do have some books there if anyone wants to buy a book tonight. They're there. Um, Other Invincibles books are available. Yeah, they are. But look, uh, this has been great, and we've really enjoyed it. So we'll look to do it again, and we'll see you at the next one, wherever that might be. In the meantime, have yourselves a drink, and uh, thank you very much. Good night. Good night. holiday season, treat yourself. Treat yourself to candy. Celebrate the holiday season with the Holiday Crush. They've sprinkled candy with a holiday theme and fun-packed challenges every week for five whole weeks, finishing on January 4th. The more challenges you complete, the better your chances of unwrapping delicious rewards. So, are you ready to crush the holidays? Play the Holiday Crush now. Download it from the App Store, Google Play, or Windows Store for free. Terms and conditions apply.